This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this week we are getting our bike on in a really, really intense way. We are going to be pedaling all the way from Islamabad in Pakistan across four of the highest mountain ranges in the world to Mount Kailash in Tibet, which is one of the holiest mountains in the world, sacred to literally billions of Buddhists, Hindus, and others around the world. It's an incredibly difficult journey, but it's also an incredibly inspiring one, and it will take us through a part of the world that very few people get to see. Are you ready? Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is travel author Graydon Hazenberg, whose book of the journey is called Pedaling to Kailash, Cycling Adventures and Misadventures on the Roof of the World. And yes, there are quite a few misadventures along the way. Graydon's a really cool guy. I know you're going to love hanging out with him because... He is a hardcore traveler. His speciality is difficult journeys, usually by bicycle, but also by foot, in some of the world's most out-of-the-way and difficult-to-reach places. And he's also a really good writer. The book is as much about the history and culture of the places he passes through as it is about the adventures he had along the way. It's really detailed and interesting, particularly so because this is a journey that he took more than 20 years ago in the late 90s, even though he's just published and released the book about it. And so it's a snapshot in time of what has become, of course, a very troubled region and one that has changed enormously in those years. So if this episode makes you curious to find out more about the region, and it has for me, then his book is a great place to start. I'll link to it or just search it up on Amazon or wherever you get your shows. His website is gradenhazenberg.ca. That's G-R-A-Y-D-O-N-H-A-Z-E-N-B-E-R-G. His Instagram is HM Stanley's Travels. The Facebook is Graydon.Hazenberg.Author. And he does a blog too, which is very cool. Graydon'sTravels.blogspot.com. Finally, just a quick request, as always, to say, if you are enjoying the show, please help by spreading the word. If you believe in this message, in our message of love for the outdoors, for adventure, and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours, then please help spread the message and help our community grow. Please also remember to follow and subscribe to the show. It really does make a huge difference. So thank you for whatever you can do. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. I'll be posting lots of amazing imagery from this trip, by the way. Graydon's a really good photographer, so do check that out. The website is armchair-explorer.com, where you can find background information on each episode, book trips inspired by the show, and sign up for the newsletter. So please check that out too. But don't worry about that right now, because we're just about to hop on our bike and set out on an amazing journey. We're going to the heart of Tibet's most sacred mountain. We're going to pedal to Kailash. But first, believe it or not, we're going on a game show. I was doing a PhD and I wasn't really that into it. And 
I'd always enjoyed trivia and, you know, Trivial Pursuit I was really good at. And I thought I might as well try out for Jeopardy. And I, I tried out and I was, was allowed on the show. And my first game I won. And I was behind the whole game until the very, very last question. And I won $17,000, which is great fun. And then the next game, because the champion returns, I was ahead by a country mile, made one mistake, and then ended up losing the game. But still, it's better to lose your second game than your first. And so suddenly I had more money than I'd ever had before. And I was also disaffected with grad school. And I thought, I'll take the money and start traveling. And so I spent a couple of years traveling on the proceeds and just realized that I enjoyed the adventure and exploring the world so much that I had made the right choice in leaving academia behind and taking up full-time travel. And oh my God, did he take up full-time travel. He went to Egypt, Turkey, Prague, Japan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Pakistan, India, and all over Europe, $17,000 has never been stretched further or spent better. And then at the end of three years of non-stop travel, he came back to Canada, where he's from, to visit his family. And there, he met up with his two sisters, and an idea started forming in their minds. we had all done a lot of adventurous travel, but always separately. And we'd never done a big trip together, and we thought we should do this. And we sort of barnstormed ideas, and it quickly became clear that we wanted to do something in the mountains, and that... Pakistan sounded like a place that would be perfect for that. It really is possibly the most impressive mountains that I've ever seen anywhere in the world. There's the Hindu Kush, which are up along the border with Afghanistan, and then there's the Himalayas, which come to an end in Pakistan, and there's the Karakoram, which run parallel to the Himalayas, and which are the most impressive visually. And then in the far north, the Pamir Mountains. So it's the roof of the world, what a child would draw. If, they, if you said draw a mountain, it would be all sort of vertical walls and pointy peaks. That's actually what these mountains look like. And so I thought my sisters would really appreciate this incredible landscape. That area is called the Pamir Knot. It's where four of the highest mountain ranges in the world come together. It is still, to this day, one of the least accessible areas on the planet. And because of that, much of it still remains unclimbed and untouched. It is spectacular. Graydon had actually been there two years previously in the midst of his Jeopardy-fueled jaunt around the world and had actually trekked to K2 base camp, among many other amazing things, which is pretty cool. But he didn't have a bicycle with him back then, and he thought that this would be a great place for a bicycle trip. Well, actually, more of a bicycle pilgrimage, because they didn't just plan to ride around randomly looking at the scenery. They planned to ride to Mount Kailash in Tibet, the holiest mountain in all of Tibetan Buddhism. We chose Mount Kailash because I had been reading a few books about the Himalayas and several that were about Mount Kailash or mentioned Mount Kailash. And it just sounded like an incredible place, both physically in terms of the landscape and also spiritually in terms of it being a mountain that's holy to a number of religions and has been a pilgrimage site for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And when we looked at the map, we knew that we wanted to be in Pakistan and we knew that we wanted to finish up in Kashgar in China. And then looking at the map, we realized if we continued a thousand or 1500 kilometers southeast, we could get to Mount Kailash. And we had enough time and we thought, when else are we going to have a chance to do this? 
Mount Kailash, which is located in the Kangdes Mountains of western Tibet, rises from the high plains like a lone, four-sided pyramid of stone, each face pointing to one of the cardinal directions. It is one of the great pilgrimages of the world, and one of the most, if not the most, beautiful too. So yeah, it was worth the extra thousand miles, and it transformed their bike adventure into something far more than just that too. Traveling with Graydon was his sisters, Audi and Sakia, and their partners, Serge and Lucas. They called themselves the Extreme Dorks, presumably because all this was still thanks to basically an obsession with Trivial Pursuit, and no one in the history of Jeopardy had ever done something anywhere near as insane as this before. They planned the trip for a year. It was an extremely remote and unknown region, particularly at that time in the late 90s, which was still in the early days of the internet, so information was hard to come by. Then, when they're ready, they hopped on a plane, flew to Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan, jumped on their bikes, and the adventure began. It was hotter than Hades. It was just before the monsoon, so it was 40 degrees every day. And we were on roads that were incredibly busy with trucks. And so the heat and the dust and the diesel fumes is very unpleasant. Plus, very quickly, we started running into an unbelievable number of flat tires. I think our record was about 20 in one day because there were thorns everywhere. And we'd run over the thorns and we'd pull off the road to patch the tires and run over more thorns. And so as soon as we'd get going, somebody else would have a flat tire. So it was very frustrating. It was very hot. It was, it was a trying ride. Plus, it was an area that had its security challenges and some people were not terribly friendly. There was a lot of rock throwing by children. We were carrying tents, but we never camped in that part of the trip because we were somewhat concerned about security. It's always been dodgy in parts of it. And so we we had planned a trip that went to a number of particularly friendly areas like Chitral, but the area just south of Chitral, which is called Deer, has always been a place that outsiders have felt a little alarmed. So that was where we had the police escort and we stayed overnight with a judge and we went out for a walk and the judge and his bodyguards were all carrying weapons. And so there, there was definitely an edge of danger in the air. It took them a week to travel from Islamabad to Chitral, 250 miles north over steep and unforgiving terrain. Here they were riding across the Punjab and into the northwest province, home of the Pashtun, who on the other side of the border are the Taliban. So it was an incredibly traditional and devout Islamic culture. The women were completely covered up. The men wore shawar kameez. They were wary of outsiders. Children threw rocks at them as they passed. And it was then, and still is, incredibly dangerous in places. But it was also beautiful and fascinating and welcoming in its own way too. They passed small villages where foreigners almost never go, sharing tea with locals and even being invited in for lunches of flatbread, mutton stew and rich tandoori curry. They passed ancient ruins and ate in small roadside stalls lit up by kerosene lamps. And then, when they finally reached the pass into Chitral, a whole new world awaited them. It had been an incredibly difficult climb, much harder than we thought. It was a a dirt road. We were riding between snowbanks that were two and three meters high, huge amounts of snow melt across the road. We had mechanical breakdowns of the bicycle. So when we finally bumped down into Chitral, it was such a relief. And there was a group of soldiers who saw us coming and started singing a welcome song as we went by, which just about brought tears to our eyes because after so much hard work, we were suddenly in this very welcoming and very 
It's almost a paradise, Chitral, in the midst of these barren mountains, all this irrigated green fields and, and just very friendly, smiling people. It was one of the highlights of the trip because not only is the main valley really, really beautiful, these dramatic mountains and these medieval forts, but there's also on these little side valleys, the Kalash people, who are a small group of non-Islamic people who have been there forever. They seem to be related to people that Alexander the Great encountered 2,300 years ago. And they have their own distinctive culture and religion. The women in particular have these very elaborate hairdos and very colorful dresses. And they're unveiled and they're not wearing headscarves and they're very open to outsiders. And they also look quite distinct. They look sort of European in, in their facial features, like maybe from the Balkans. There's a lot of light eyes and sandy hair. And we had a great encounter with kids one day where they were clustering around asking us questions that we couldn't really speak to them. But we had a guidebook and I was showing them pictures in the guidebook of Chitral. And suddenly they recognized some of the people in the pictures. Obviously the guidebook writer had been to that very valley and suddenly they were so excited. They were saying, hey, look, there's your uncle. Oh, look, it's your sister. And I realized at that time how little visual stimulation they had. Like, they didn't have a lot of books, a lot of pictures. And so for them, it was such a thrill to see themselves and people they knew depicted in pictures. And so it was wonderful to visit them in the midst of all this very, very stern, monolithic Islam to see this minority culture that is still surviving to this very day. The Kalash people are said to have descended from the soldiers of Alexander the Great as he passed through this area around 324 BC. They have their own language, dress, brightly colored clothes and elaborate headbands. They are animist, nature worshippers, and have refused to convert to Islam despite being surrounded on all sides by some of the most devout Muslim communities on the planet. And only a handful of them still exist. They're like a secret tribe. By some estimates, only 5,000 of them are left, and they can only be found here, among these small remote valleys of Chitral. But it wasn't just the culture and the people that were special. It was the mountains, too, because now they were in the Hindu Kush, one of the most magnificent ranges in all of Asia. Huge snow-capped peaks rising thousands of feet from the valleys, as sharp as a serrated blade. A place so wild and untouched that snow leopards still roam, invisible to all, save for the odd footprint ghosted in the snow. And even better, especially back then, the Hindu Kush were little known to outsiders and ripe for exploration. Everyone's heard of the Himalayas and mountain climbers know all about the Karakoram, but the Hindu Kush is much less climbed and explored. And half of it, most of it really, is in Afghanistan. So access on that side is really, really hard. There's remote, there's tons of interesting languages and cultures. And it really is one of the great romantic mountain ranges of the world. And we were very, very lucky to visit when we did, I think. We were there for probably about 10 days in total. And the trekking we did was absolutely fantastic. We tried to trek to the foot of the highest peak in the Hindu Kush, Tirich Mir, and we were turned back by just terrible weather, persistent rain and fog, and it was just miserable. And we aborted that trek and we hiked out over a pass. 
And we arrived in the rain and the fog and the cold and our stoves didn't work and we went to bed hungry. And the next morning we woke up and all the clouds and all the rain had cleared away. And we had the most incredible view of the whole length of the central Hindu Kush. It was one of the most dramatic views of the whole trip. I mean, you feel so small and so insignificant. And also at that altitude, you tend to have very, very clear light. And so you feel as though you can see forever. And looking at the scale of the mountains, the scale of the world, these incredibly deep valleys and these very steep cliffs, you just feel completely awestruck and insignificant. You can see why these huge mountains become sacred pilgrimage sites, because it makes you think of the sublime just being there. But from the sublime to, well, if not the ridiculous, then the ridiculously hard. Five days of brutal cycling over dirt roads that rattled them to the bones and broke their bikes to pieces, literally falling apart before their eyes. Their progress became painfully slow. They had to constantly stop for repairs or to push their bikes through impassable sections of so-called road. But they were also celebrities. Children would run out of classrooms as they passed through small towns, cheering and chasing them down the road. Being a rock star has nothing on being a cycle tourist in the Hindu Kush, Graydon says. And then, after five hard days of mind-numbing slog and frustration across some of the highest passes in the world, they arrived in one of the most beautiful and dangerous peaks on the entire planet. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We did a side trip to Nanga Parbat. That's the end of the Himalayas. And it's this unbelievably dramatic mountain because it's surrounded by a bend of the Indus River, which is down to about 1,300 meters. And then the peak is over 8,000 meters. So the vertical height that you can see is enormous. It's one of the most prominent peaks in the world. And it's also very difficult to climb. It's, it's killed a lot of mountaineers. It's got this face that's more or less vertical for four kilometers. 
And so we were very excited to go see it. And it was a very, very dramatic hike. We hiked underneath the Rupal face, which is the most difficult mountaineering face on the mountain. And we could see people up there trying to climb it. But we could also see these titanic avalanches sweeping down the face every afternoon. And we thought that it looked like sheer suicide to try to climb up it. So we walked past that and then up the valley and we tried to reach this pass that would give us an amazing view. But we had left our guide behind. We said, oh, we don't need a guide. And we went on the wrong route. We were climbing along and suddenly I thought, I think it's a little more difficult than it's supposed to be. And we were on quite a steep snow slope and we were kicking steps, but we didn't have crampons, we didn't have ice axes. And it just got steeper and steeper and more and more icy. And at a certain point, all of us just bailed out and thought, this is going to end badly and slid down on the snow, very relieved to get off alive. Sometimes you do just have to slide back down the mountain on your bob and say, fair enough, especially on Nanga Parbat. Graydon and the team were just in the foothills, just walking below the face. And that turned out to be pretty hairy anyway. But climbing up the actual mountain is for the climbing insane. It is one of the highest peaks in the world at well over 26,000 feet. That actually puts it at the ninth tallest in the world. And the vertical rise of that main face, the Rupal face as it's known, is an astonishing 15,500 feet tall. That is more than five times as much as El Capitan in Yosemite. It is 10 Empire State Buildings, all of it sheer vertical rock face, with avalanches pouring down too. According to the BBC, some 339 people have successfully summited it in history, but 69 have died trying, which makes it one of the most dangerous mountains in the world. You basically have a one in five chance of dying. But they survived, and then they hit the road again, now heading to Kashgar in China, just across the Pakistani border, following the Karakoram Highway to, well, to Shangri-La, the mythical, or is it, city made famous by James Hilton's 1933 novel, Lost Horizon. Our favorite place was the Valley of Hunza, which was probably the model for Shangri-La and the long-lived people in James Hilton's book. But it seems that James Hilton read some books by people who'd been up in Hunza. And so his description of this, this fertile valley in the high mountains where people live forever seems to have been taken from accounts of Hunza. And that's a very dramatic mountain valley oasis because you're surrounded by completely barren rock. But the high glaciers give rise to these rivers that they then channel for irrigation. You get quite fertile areas where they grow apricots and grain and, and where there's quite dense population. And the people are very friendly. And between the beauty and the welcoming people and the hiking, it's probably my favorite place in Pakistan. And so we kind of lingered there and did some hiking here and hiking there. And the hikes are very, they're challenging. I mean, they're very vertical. But once you get up into these high pastures, there's some of the most beautiful mountain views you'll see anywhere. And that's where the Karakoram, the high peaks, are so cliffy and pointy. There's a lot of just rock spires and these impressive walls. And so we spent a lot of time just sitting there taking pictures and sketching and sort of making awestruck noises. Shangri-La, as James Hilton envisioned it, is a fiction. It was born from his imagination. 
That story has also been linked to the mythical Tibetan kingdom of Shambhala, a place hidden and cut off from the outside world where all its inhabitants are enlightened and guard an ancient wisdom from the corruption of outside influence. It's probably a metaphor, of course. There isn't a real Shambhala, but it's nice to think it could be true. And certainly many people over the years have actually gone looking for it. So you never know. And perhaps the Hunza Valley at one time was Shambhala. And to be honest, it's still not far off. According to actual research conducted by National Geographic and others, the Hunza people may well live longer and certainly remain fitter and more active than almost anywhere else in the world. They suffer very little disease and the scenery around the Hunza River Valley may just be the most breathtakingly beautiful scenery on earth. Sounds like a magical paradise to me. And some of that magic must have rubbed off on them too. Because from here, the going got easier. The Karakoram Highway turned to pavement. They ate up the miles. No mechanical problems. No flat tires. And they cruised from the Hunza Valley over the Pamir Mountains in the Hunjarab Pass into China. So by the time they reached Kashgar, they were feeling optimistic. They thought they were through the worst of it. But they were very very wrong. So after being up in the high mountains, you go across a couple of mountain passes in China as well, and you finally drop down into the lowlands. And so it was nice not to be cold. It had been pretty chilly up there. And to have easy, flat riding. And to see Kashgar in those days, because at that point it was still mostly traditional Uyghur architecture, a lot of adobe houses, a lot of grapes being grown, a lot of shrines mosques. It looked very, very interesting. It looked very old and timeless. And we were lucky we were there when we were, because from what I understand, since then, a lot of the traditional architecture has been knocked down and been replaced with Chinese apartment blocks. And so Kashgar has become a Chinese city with a few Uyghurs living in it rather than a predominantly Uyghur city. But when we were there, we went to the Sunday market, which was one of the big things for tourists to see. And it was impressive because it was a big agricultural market for not just Kashgar, but all the surrounding area, and even people coming in from some of the ex-Soviet republics like Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. It was unbelievably bustling. There must have been 30,000 people there and all these donkey carts, and they're buying and selling everything. One of the things that you see is hats. Every ethnic group or every town has its own distinctive headwear. And so the hat part of the market was so much fun. We're trying on all these hats. We all walked away with various hats that we had bought. But you, you see camels for sale and horses and donkeys and handiwork like metalwork and, and tiles. And it's just a, a feast for the senses. It was an amazing highlight. And also, it was a place where we could sit and eat a lot. We were getting very hungry and skinny. And so to be in an urban setting with huge amounts of food We just gorged ourselves for about five days. Which you would do. They had become very skinny. They were constantly running out of food during long stretches of camping away from towns and out in the wild. And suddenly, here they were in one of the biggest markets in Asia. For centuries, the Kashgar market was one of the most important meeting points for traders and travelers along the Silk Road. And it's still absolutely enormous today, with every possible delicacy imaginable on offer. So it was a highlight of the trip. But it pretty quickly turned into a low light. We knew that 
We were allowed to be in the lowlands. That was an open area. But we weren't allowed to be on this road that led to Western Tibet. And so we rode you know, along the main road of the lowlands through these Silk Road cities. And we figured it's no problem to be here. We're allowed to be here. But of course, the Chinese Public Security Bureau knew that if you were on this road, there's a reasonable chance you were there because you wanted to go to Tibet eventually. But the, I mean, one of the hardest parts actually was getting onto the highway. We were officially forbidden from going on this road without a Chinese escort and guide and support vehicle. So we were interrogated one night at our hotel for about two hours. And we decided after that we weren't going to stay in any more hotels. And we were confronted by a guy in the market who said, oh, I'm a truck driver, I'll, I'll give you a lift to Tibet. And it turned out he was an undercover policeman who was trying to catch us in the act of going on the, the road to Tibet. And then he revealed, hey, I'm from the Public Security Bureau, and if I hear you're on that road, I'm going to get in a truck, come chase you down, arrest you, and deport you. Do I make myself clear? I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. But in those days, it was people sneaked around the checkpoints. And so we did that. And then when we got to the junction town where you could continue along the lowland road or turn up into the Tibetan highland road, it was there that we, we stopped and we camped outside town. And we had had big discussions about how we were going to avoid the checkpoints, which we knew existed. And we thought, we'll do it at night because from what we understood, the people would fall asleep and they would wake up when they heard vehicles coming. But bicycles don't make enough noise to wake them up. So it was pretty nerve wracking because we were bicycling in the dark with no headlamps on so we didn't attract attention and trying to figure out where is this checkpoint? Where's the checkpoint? And the first checkpoint we were on before we really realized it. And so we thought, oh no, okay. So we is nerve wracking, our hearts are thumping away. And just as we're about to sneak by, a car starts following us and lighting us up with its headlights. And we think, oh, it's the police. And we lost our nerve and we turned around and, and cycled back to the main road. And so we tried an hour later, and this time the, the car didn't show up. And we bicycled for about 20 kilometers in the dark. And we knew there was another checkpoint. And we decided we would stop just before that. And we thought we were about four kilometers away. And we put our bicycles down, we fell asleep. And the next morning when we woke up, we realized we were only about 500 meters from the checkpoint. And that was when Comrade Ahmed Chan came looking for us. And he had obviously been told that we were there, but he hadn't been given very good instructions because we could see his Jeep coming along. And he turned off the road and started heading towards us and he turned the wrong way and disappeared. And so we watched for a while. And after about an hour, he gave up and drove away. And so that night we rode all night and we got about 80 kilometers down the road. And riding at night is, I, I don't like it at all because we couldn't put on our lights. We were riding more or less by moonlight and starlight. And it's just very, very disconcerting. And so by that point we figured we'd gone far enough that he wasn't gonna come chase us and we could start riding by day. But it was, it was nerve wracking and it was sort of a game, but it was a game that you knew if you lost the game, it was going to be costly in terms of money and also opportunity. That would be the end of, of this trip that we'd been planning for a year. 
Comrade Ahmed Chan, by the way. What a name. You guessed it, was the undercover truck driver, stroke public security bureau officer who had tried to trick them. And having had that trick turned back on him, was now hell-bent on tracking them down and deporting them. But he didn't. They escaped riding through the pitch-black night for two days until they finally reached the road to Tibet in safety. It was hard. It nearly broke them. They faced enormous, dangerous river crossings, even worse roads and higher passes. Two of their party actually quit. They threw their bikes down and said, we're out, we're hitching a ride with the next truck that passes. But in the immense serendipity and humor of the universe, no truck passed them for two whole days, so they were forced to stay, which was lucky because by the time a truck did pass them, they crossed the border into Tibet and they were so close now that they decided to stay. Nothing was going to stop them now. It was a very emotional moment. We'd been going over a series of really high passes and this was one of the last high passes and suddenly there were Tibetan prayer flags everywhere and we looked at the map and we realized we're on the Tibetan frontier. We were actually there, we were in Tibet. And there was still hard cycling in front of us, but at least we realized we're going to make it. And it gave us enough hope to continue the suffering. And as soon as you got to Tibet, the light changed. It, it seemed to be brighter and the colors were more vivid and people wore colors, especially the women. The, the Tibetan nomadic women wore very colorful dresses and jewelry and these very elaborate hairdos. And it was as though a light came on. Everything just looks so close, even if it's 100 kilometers away. Everything looks so bright and so colorful. It's all primary colors. We were passing nomad encampments. And so these are nomads that go up into the high mountains, the high plateau in the summer to graze their sheep, to graze their yaks. And some of them, their tents were quite close to the road. So we stopped in to say hi. And I remember this one family where the grandmother looked incredibly old. She looked like she was 80 years old. But doing the math, we thought she can't be more than 50, 55. But living outdoors in the cold for her entire life, it's just hard on the body. Her, especially you know, all the UV at high altitude. And her, she was very wizened and a little hunched over. And you could tell that in terms of material possessions, they didn't have many. You would say, oh, they're, they're poor. And yet they had huge flocks of sheep and, and yaks, and they had the freedom to go more or less wherever they wanted. And so they were rich in that sense, even if they didn't have a lot of modern material possessions. But life was hard for these people. And you looked at how they lived and the work they had to do to shear the sheep and to milk the yaks and to make cheese and to make their own clothing. And I was just impressed at their toughness, at their hardiness, because it's a very unforgiving environment. And so for these people, I think that the nomads of Tibet, they have lived this way for a long time. And like the Inuit of the Arctic, they're kind of on the edge of what's survivable. And so to be able to have a culture and to survive in a very tough environment when we live such a cosseted, easy existence in the West with central heating and air conditioning and electricity and supermarkets, I think it's, it's quite eye-opening. And they've also lived through great repression by the Chinese government and come out surviving. And so 
I think that their toughness and their cheerfulness in the face of adversity can teach a lot of us a lot. And it makes you realize how privileged we are to have the money and the opportunity to make the kind of trips we were making and to see all the different ways that people have found to, to make a living out of the world and the natural environment and the cultures that arise as a result of that. There are roughly two million Tibetan nomads spread out over the vast area of the Tibetan plateau. They live hard lives outdoors in one of the harshest environments on earth. But that has taught them much. And as Graydon says, it can teach us much too about our values, about our connection to the land, to nature, about integrity, courage, and generosity of spirit. But since the Chinese invasion of 1950, those nomads and all the Tibetan people have seen their peaceful country, their religion, their culture, an entire way of life decimated. And so by daring to break that lock and cross into Tibet, riding through the night, risking deportation or worse, Graydon was also raising awareness for their plight. This wasn't just a pilgrimage for himself, for his own rewards. By visiting Mount Kailash, he was also honoring the Tibetan people and shining a light on the fact that despite this adversity, the Tibetan people are still, to this day, fighting to keep their religion and way of life alive. And as long as tough, determined nomads like the family he met keep that going and keep smiling in the face of it, I think they have a pretty good chance of succeeding too. Mount Kailash was now only a few days' ride away. This last stretch was only about 300 kilometers. And so you might look at that and say, hey, we can do that in two or three days. No, it took almost a week. And every day was difficult. There were a lot of river crossings. It was an unusual summer where the Indian monsoon had come over the Himalayas in much greater quantities than usual. And so the rivers were running high. And some of these river crossings were harrowing. I mean, we just about lost people and bicycles in these torrents of flood. So when we finally first saw Kailash in the distance on the horizon, I just about burst into tears because it had seemed like we were never going to make it. And suddenly, it was close enough that we could see it, therefore we were going to make it. And so when we cycled into the pilgrimage town at the bottom of the mountain, we were all just about in tears because... All that effort over three months had finally paid off and we'd made it. It just was an incredible feeling. So I thought that it made our visit to Kailash more meaningful because it really was a pilgrimage. It was hard to get there. We had to be determined. We had to want to go there. Whereas if you just climb in the back of a, of a Jeep and drive there, I don't think it has that same emotional resonance with you. And that's the point of pilgrimage. It should be hard. It should ask something of you. It should challenge you. Because in that asking is also where the answers come, especially here. It's believed that if you walk one circuit of the mountain, one kora, as it's known, which is about 35 miles, and that might not seem long, but you're up above 16,000 feet for most of it, so it is hard, you will absolve the sins of your lifetime. If you walk it 13 times, you will find enlightenment at some point within your lifetime. And if you walk it 108 times continuously, you will become instantly enlightened, which sounds pretty awesome. They left their bikes and stepped foot on the mountain. It was now their turn. 
we took three days to do it or two and a half days. And it was hard because our legs were sort of atrophying. Everything that wasn't involved in cycling had been eaten by our bodies, which were in great hunger. So we were pretty slow in our hiking. Whereas some of the Tibetan pilgrims, even older ones, like ones that looked like they were 60 or 70, they barreled around the whole thing in one day, like little cruise missiles. They went so quickly. And what you see along the way, there's a series of monasteries, but there's also these places that have spiritual significance. There are self-manifesting chortens. There are caves and there are piles of rocks. And there's places where people have sacrificed yaks. And so you see yak skull. And there are all these stories behind it. There's so much history and mythology and religion behind it. It was the site of a contest between two religions, Tibetan Buddhism and this indigenous religion called Bon. And that a great champion of Bon and a great champion of Tibetan Buddhism competed to see whose religion could claim the mountain. And the Buddhist won in the end after all these miraculous feats were accomplished and so you can you're going along and you say oh that's where this part of the story happened that's where that part of the story happened and so we had great fun with that just being able to see where these things happen and putting sort of a visual to the story but we managed to get lost somehow i mean it it's a pilgrimage route that hundreds of people a day do in the summer and we still managed not to find the right route which was just a feat of complete incompetence. Like, we could not believe it when, when we realized we were on the wrong route. What does it say about you if you get lost on a pilgrimage? If that's not a message from the universe, I don't know what is. Lucky for them, they did find their way back to the end and made it and completed their Korah. They had walked Mount Kailash as they set out to do thousands of miles and many, many hard weeks before. But the trip wasn't quite over. It wasn't quite the end of their pilgrimage yet. Because 25 miles away is the sacred lake Manasarovar, and it is here, not on the mountain, that the pilgrimage traditionally ends. The two things go together. The lake and the mountain are almost always visited as a package because they're only about 40 kilometers apart. And so we really enjoyed the hike around Kailash. It was fantastic. And yet, visually, Arriving at the lake, I thought, in the midst of this fairly barren, open plain, seeing this blue just shining, iridescent in the sunlight, I thought that that very much was emotionally the end of it. You think, ah, this is what we came to see. I think that these plains on the Tibetan Plateau, that they extend much further than you think, and they look absolutely as though they go beyond the horizon forever. The combination of that and the clarity of the light and the color of of the water together, they just look like the picture that you have of infinity. It, It felt very much like that. It was something that lifts your spirit towards the infinite. I love that. It lifts your spirit towards the infinite. That's exactly what it feels like. Traditionally, the lake itself is then walked around as a kind of second pilgrimage. They were tired, they were emotionally, physically and mentally done, and fair enough. So they decided to do a little pilgrimage ritual of their own. The waters of the lake are holy and you're supposed to drink them. 
but they're also covered in algae and slime and didn't look too drinkable. So instead, they rode their bikes down to the lake to perform a little blessing of their own. By this time, given how many breakdowns and mechanical troubles they'd had, they were convinced the bikes were cursed. We counted to three, Graydon writes, and with a resounding yell, launched the bikes high into the air. They came down less with a satisfying splash than a revolting squelch. But it felt good to take our mechanical frustrations out in such a sanctified way. Then we waded in gingerly to fish them out. I think that's a pretty fitting end to a difficult but also incredibly rewarding and at times very spiritual trip. They had made it. The bikes had made it. The adventure was complete. We were very fortunate that we went when we went. A lot of the places we went in Pakistan are much more difficult, if not impossible, to go to because of various security concerns since then. In fact, at the end of that summer of 1998, there was an attack on American embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. And the Americans launched cruise missiles at Afghanistan, and a couple of those landed in Pakistan. There was great anger against Americans, against foreigners in general. And it became harder to travel from that moment onwards. And certainly after 2001, a lot of the more traditional parts of of Pakistan, like deer, those were off limits. And so Pakistan, because of security problems, has become harder to travel, although not everywhere, people still go there. But then the Chinese part, Xinjiang is under lockdown. It's this giant open air prison camp. And so it's very hard to travel independently there. And what we did, sneaking around checkpoints in the dark, is no longer possible. They're much more serious about trying to prevent people from getting to Tibet. And so the trip, as we did it, I don't think would really be possible anymore. Or if it were possible, it would be much more difficult and and dangerous with more consequences. So we kind of were in a golden period where it was possible to do it. And where both Tibet and Xinjiang were under a lot less repression than they are now. And so we were able to see it when the culture was more vibrant. Some 1.2 million Tibetans have been killed by Chinese authorities. More than 6,000 monasteries have been destroyed. They're one of the most oppressed people in the world. And of course, the Dalai Lama, their spiritual leader, has been in exile since 1959. It is an incredibly difficult country to visit now. But it remains, despite all of this, an incredibly beautiful country and people. And no matter what's thrown at them, Mount Kailash still stands, and so will they. I'm going to read you a quote now, and it's the quote Graydon chose to open his book with, and I think it's a good way to end this episode. It's by the poet Robert Service, and it goes like this. There's a race of men that don't fit in, a race that can't stay still. So they break the hearts of kith and kin, and they roam the world at will. They range the fields and they rove the flood and they climb the mountain's crest. Theirs is the curse of the gypsy blood and they don't know how to rest. That's a a quote that actually my mother always liked. And so I had heard it before, but not thought about it. That's how I have lived my life. Since I started traveling after winning Jeopardy, I've kept going. I mean, I I always am planning the next trip and the trip after that. And I always want to know where I can go next. And so the race that can't stay still 
to me, the idea of settling down and spending all my time just in one place, I, I don't think I could do it. I derive so much pleasure and, and so much meaning from life, from travel, that I thought that that quote described me pretty well. I feel that the older I get, the more I realize how little time is left to do things that I want to do and how precious time is as a resource compared to almost anything else. It's, it's a supremely inelastic resource. And I don't think everybody should go off and ride a bicycle to Kailash, but everyone should think, I think, quite deeply about what it is that's most important to them. What do they want to do with their life? What do they want to accomplish? What do they want when they're sitting in their rocking chair at age 80 to look back on and think, yeah, that was a really good thing I did? Whatever that is, I think you should realize that you only have a limited amount of time to do that. And so you should do it. You should do whatever it takes to prepare, to get ready, to, to accomplish what it is that you want to do. Because you only get this one chance at it. And uh, it'll be over before you know it. You can always make more money. You can never make more time. So make the most of the time you have. That's actually the quote Graydon ends the book with. He heard it backpacking on some island when he was 19 years old and has lived by it ever since. You can always make more money. You can never make more time. Time is the most precious resource of all. It's constantly slipping between our fingers. And if that's true, if it really is the most precious resource of all, then Graydon's right. Figure out what's important. Find the stories you want to tell when you're old and grey and your travelling days are done. And make those memories now. There is no time to waste. So go and find your own Mount Kailash. Pedal hard to get there. Walk it well. And never look back. Thank you, Graydon. Thank you so much for taking us on this amazing adventure, pedaling from Islamabad across the roof of the world to Kailash. The book of his journey is called Pedaling to Kailash, Cycling Adventures and Misadventures Across the Roof of the World. I'll link to it or just search it up on Amazon or wherever you get your books. It's a really great read, not just about their adventure, but also about the history and culture of the regions he passes through. And if this episode has inspired you to find out more about this part of the world, then go and grab his book. It's a great place to start. And keep your eyes peeled also for his next one, which will be out soon. It's called Silk and Solitude, Cycling Through the History of the Silk Road. His website is gradenhazenberg.ca. His Instagram is hmstanleystravels. The Facebook is graydon.hazenberg.author. And his blog is gradenstravels.blogspot.com. Thank you also to Lizzie Goldsmith for her work sound editing this episode. She's an awesome writer and podcast producer in her own right. It's great to work with her on this. And you can check out more of her work at lizziegoldsmith.com. Finally, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it. Check out a few more, subscribe and follow the show and be a part of this community. If you love the outdoors and adventure and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours, you're in the right place. Come and hang out. We're going to get on well. So keep exploring. Keep looking for those mountains. Keep spending that precious resource of your time well. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.